Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Livs. This week, we're discussing the first episode of Star Trek Prodigy. And a big welcome to all those people joining us in 2022 because they waited until Prodigy was legally available in their region. I hope you're enjoying whatever horrors the future brings. (laughs) (laughs) What a terrible thing to think about. Oh dear. I know. But they have new Star Trek and we have new Star Trek. New Star Trek. Yay! So the complaint that you predicted that everyone would have, and you were yep. right, is that it looks a little bit Star Warsy, A little bit Guardians of the Galaxy. Yep. I mean, to be fair, that's what I saw immediately, so I'm not saying that they're wrong. Oh, no, not at all. To compare Prodigy to Star Wars or Guardians of the Galaxy. But? <laughs> but I, I do not have those complaints. I don't think it is a bad thing to resemble modern takes on space when you are introducing a new modern take on space. No, exactly. Star Trek has this reputation for being incredibly dour and it's silly but it's humorless about it and it's got these really tedious gatekeeping fans and I think a lot of people find that off-putting and don't want to watch Star Trek because they don't know that it's fun. This is a franchise about people in silly overalls standing around having serious conversations about ethics and Prodigy opens with these bright colours and it's sort of taking the Star Wars and the MCU fans by the hand going, no, no, it's okay. We are silly, I promise. We're just going to ease you into it and we're going to teach you how to speak our language. Yes, exactly. The plot device of the translator I thought was really cleverly used. Right. I mean, I love both Star Wars and Guardians of the Galaxy. And to be fair, I've described Guardians of the Galaxy as the Star Wars of the MCU. Well, yes. Star Wars, in turn, was also inspired somewhat by Star Trek because it came first. So it's like... Absolutely. If you don't have to choose one, you can actually enjoy (laughs) space opera space drama and and just be happy about it it's just funny to me that immediately i saw so many comments oh absolutely because i follow the star wars trending topic on twitter (laughs) and they were talking about star trek prodigy in the star wars trending topic and how it looked like star wars and so it's just funny it's like oh internet (laughs) always so predictable I think the design is very beautiful and it was a clever notion to introduce it this way. And there is no reason that Star Trek cannot be brightly coloured and silly and beautiful and not just a bunch of guys in ugly outfits and one beautiful lady in a cat suit standing around having a conversation. You're describing Star Trek, which we obviously love enough to have <laughs> a Star Trek podcast. Yes! As this, you know, real. I mean, I don't think I would want to watch a bunch of guys in silly outfits and one lady in a cat suit <laughs> talking <laughs> for an hour. That sounds bad. I think that's no. a bad reputation and we should avoid it. <laughs> no, but that is sort of how the franchise has been perceived. And 
in a way, the fandom doesn't help because any time we try to evolve beyond that, you know, with 2009 and then Discovery, the fandom kicks up a stink. And so many people are put off watching the new Star Treks because they've heard, oh, the fandom doesn't like it, so it mustn't be very good. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And Star Trek has always been silly and brightly coloured and incredibly enthusiastic about what it loves. I'm delighted that new viewers are going to be introduced to that. You're right, though, that it has this reputation of being serious. People take it super seriously that it takes place in quote-unquote reality. Yeah. Because it's not in a galaxy far, far away. And it's not in a magical or pseudo-magical universe like the MCU. Right. Yeah. They, they don't have mutants, they don't have magic powers, they don't have Norse gods. And I absolutely think that there is a place for that serious business science fiction, but Star Trek is, is also silly. Yes, and Star Trek is joyous and you know I hate the hope versus optimism, the optimism versus idealism thing, but it is hopeful and I think just because it's realistic and real people in space doesn't mean we can't be any of those other things as well. Right. And also, what is wrong with real people being silly in space? You know, the internet went crazy when that one astronaut wore a Starfleet uniform and pointed to a nebula and said there's coffee in there because that was great. That was an amazing callback to Star Trek, but it was also silly as hell. Absolutely. That was having fun with Star Trek. And I think that we should acknowledge that scientific exploration or advancement is not inherently only serious. Like, that you can't actually have scientific advancement if you aren't also creative and imaginative and thinking Mm. outside the box. I think that puts it really well. And we had this terrible backlash against Tilly's that's the power of math, people, line a couple of years ago. I really just think Star Trek fans are Star Trek's worst enemy. Next to Rick Berman. Our our three line. line. (laughs) (laughs) And then your note here is save the cat. Save the cat is a concept in screenwriting and storytelling Mm. Mm. that, you know, you have to get people invested in your storyline by, you know, having these heroic characters. And so saving a cat is a shorthand for being heroic for the sake of being heroic, not for some big giant thing that is just a part of your personality. Yes. That's the very bare bones version of the idea. And I just loved that there was literally a cat. (laughs) And they need to go back to save her. (laughs) Yes. And it's like they're winking Mm -hmm. at the idea of storytelling, which I think goes hand in hand with the thesis I discussed last episode and that you just mentioned taking new fans by the hand and saying, come into our story and learn all about Starfleet and the Federation and what Star Trek is. It's like they're saying we are telling the story of Star Trek And they had this cute little cat girl. And I was just like, this is so hilarious to me. And also, everyone in the audience, the big NYCC audience watching this episode, and especially my friend who was sitting right next to me, was like, look, not only does that cat need to be saved, but like, why hasn't that cat already been saved? No, no. (laughs) This is a plot point that we need to have wrapped up. And I just thought that was... 
clever in its like you know tongue-in-cheek but also adorable way i did not make the connection with save the cat the storytelling (laughs) concept but i did walk away thinking okay so this season is about them learning to become heroes and learning to use the ship and then they go back and rescue not just the cat but all the slaves all of them Right, exactly. Everybody was instantly invested in that character. Yes. And we knew, you know, even that character wasn't in any of the promotional material. So it was like, oh no, what's going to happen? That they leave them behind. It was just a really good way of getting people invested, not in just the characters, but also in the story and the plot and the idea of what was happening beyond we found a ship and we're escaping. In terms of literally saving the cat, also Gwyn's reaction to seeing such a young child being brought in as a slave and her kindness to the cat immediately tells us that she is maybe an antagonist right now, but she is not a terrible person. And that's great because she's my favourite. She's my favorite too. She's like literally made for me though. <laughs> that that character is my type of character. Mm-hmm. The I am terrible because I've been created to be terrible, but I'm not actually like I want to be a good person. I want to be better. I want to do the right thing, and I just yes. don't know how because no one's ever showed me. Yes, and and then you get the story of of them being shown and becoming as you said, the hero that they are and could be and that we want them to be. Yes. Whereas Dahl, I think I like him a lot. I think he's going to be a lot of fun as a lead character, but he doesn't have the same internal conflicts as Gwyn. And that's fine. You can't have an entire team of deeply conflicted people in need of redemption. He's clearly the chosen one in this He's literally chosen yeah. by Zero. He's the chosen one in this story and I guess going on the hero's journey. So I like that they have these, you know, two central storylines mm. that are going to be parallel and eventually, I'm sure, twist. And, you know, sorry, I already ship it. I, think, <laughs> I, don't, think that, I don't think that that is uh, crazy. I think that that's where it's going to end up. So yes, this is children's storytelling so it's not going to be complicated no i mean they're not trying to trick us (laughs) no although having been in avatar and legend of korra fandom and having watched voltron and shira fandoms the idea of combining trekkies with the teen kids animated series shipping fandoms is just terrifying to me but I like Dahl. I think he reminds me a lot of Sokka in Avatar The Last Airbender in that he doesn't have special powers. He's just a guy who is smart and knows how to use his brain. And pays attention. Yeah, and he has a lot to learn along the way. Yes. Yeah. After Boimler, I'm kind of like, really? Another boy who thinks he should be the captain? But I actually think he and Gwyn are going to make a great team. And then there's Rock Tuck who is adorable and wonderful and my stony daughter her yes and it's just so much fun the moment when the translator kicks in and we hear her truly for the first time Mm. was another like everyone just went "Ah!" (laughs) (laughs) you know a collective excitement in that moment and the voice actress is adorable 
she does a very good job. I wish her all the best in in <laughs> life because she's just, you know, she's young. She is rock talk. Yeah, she is that. I'm just super excited to be here, <laughs> person, and that's really fun. And I appreciate that as the youngest that we know of, obviously Murph is still a question mark, she is the one who sort of embodies not just the Star Trek optimism, but the belief in others. Whereas Dahl and Gwyn and Jankum are all pretty bruised by their experiences and a bit more cynical. And I think we really need Rock Talk to balance that out. Yes. Also... You know how we were talked about how Gwyn immediately is worried about vacation mm. for being so young. And Rock Talk sort of tricks everybody. We don't realize how young she is. And I just like the idea that that optimism and that youth is embodied in this big rock girl <laughs> who... Yes. You you don't automatically, you know, like, again, with the cat, you immediately are like, oh, look at the little kitten we have to protect. You definitely and don't have rock that. Talk, you don't have yeah. that. When she says, I might be big, but I'm not dumb, that really kind of broke my heart because my little sister was a bigger girl as a kid and she really had to deal with a lot of prejudice about that, not just from kids, but from adults who, who saw this tall chubby shy kid and went oh yeah no she's dumb as a bucket of rocks i think rock talk is is sort of the same and i just want to protect her and keep her safe and appreciate her for how very clever she is i'm sad mm. and you said that the older trio who are 16 and 17 mm. are more cynical and it's not explicit how long they've been in no child's enslavement minds <laughs> where they literally murder you if you <laughs> go outside the bounds but i would be cynical too no no that was not at all a criticism of those characters and honestly it's a miracle that any of them are functioning beings and not curled up into a fetal position 24 7 i am very curious to know if the authors meant to make this origin story quite so dark because it's not played that way <laughs> even though they're literally using words like child slave mm. and this one is too young and never bring me another one and doll is going to be murdered <laughs> <laughs> all of that happens and is textual mm. but it still has this you know super optimistic and colorful and you know big ending and then mm. Janeway shows up and is like hey everybody how you doing let me tell you what's going on this very Star Trek ending it may have started before Avatar The Last Airbender because that's sort of where my knowledge of kids animation begins and ends but that is a really, really dark show. You know, it deals with genocide and imperialism and Zuko's dad literally sets his face on fire because he's an extremely handsome piece of shit. A lot of kids' media is really, really dark and kids enjoy that, but they also sort of... It's less horrifying to them than it is to adults. Like... I read The Hunger Games now and I'm like, oh my god, these children are fighting to the death. And when I was 16, 
I would have been like, oh my God, these kids are so powerful and they're so responsible for their own lives. And so it's sort of that childhood fantasy of Mm. not understanding how dark something is, but needing Mm -hmm. a story where kids like you endure and come out. Yeah, I don't think it's new. I think you're right. I remember when my daughter was in seventh grade or in between seventh and eighth grade, maybe, Mm. and was required to read a book over the summer. And the list of books (laughs) was literally all about death. It was like, which book about death do you want to read on your summer vacation? (laughs) And I was just like, why? Why? What is going on here? You're taking these 12 and 13 year olds and forcing them to literally grapple with their existence (laughs) and the end of existence. And it's just like, what is going on? What is the purpose of this exercise? And sometimes that can really backfire. Like when I was 14, just after my parents' marriage ended and it did not end on good or unviolent terms, I had to read a book for school about a girl basically forgiving her father for burning her face off with acid because he was aiming for her mother and her mother was a horrible bitch who deserved it. And suffice to say, I did not cope well with that assignment. And I still don't think that book is one that should be recommended to children. It's not good. But at the same time, like, we were talking in my writer's group just this week about the the stories that kids write themselves. My friend had to judge a children's writing competition, and all of these 12-year-olds were writing about war and death and domestic violence and murder. She was like, none of these kids have experienced that stuff themselves, but they live in this world and they still need to process its dark side through fiction. Yes, and you were right about it being the difference between a child reading it and an adult Mm. reading it. And when I say child, I mean up through 28. Because that's that's when your brain is an adult. That's when your, your brain gets to adult brain. And adult brain handles the like adult brain thinks about life and death in a very different way than child brain does yeah adolescent brain and those questions of morality and questions of inevitability and invincibility and all of that those are like the last parts of your brain to develop yeah so you're absolutely right and the science backs all of that up I'm not saying that this is bad. I'm just saying this is crazy. Yeah. And it's so it's so interesting to me that we always do this. I mean, you look at the Bad Batch. So yeah. the Clone Wars started out as this sort of goofy <laughs> story about these characters. Like, we're going to have the, the happy times before Revenge of the Sith. Yes. Those good, fun war times. Yeah, those good, those good, fun war times. Like, I described the pilot episode as cute but doomed is my aesthetic. Yes. It was always there, even, in, even when it wasn't mm. as explicit as the last eight episodes, <laughs> where they, they really you know, jump right off the deep end into this is the most devastating cartoon you have ever seen in your life. Yeah. Uh, And then that's literally where the Bad Batch starts. Oh. (laughs) This is hard. This is all rough times. And that is in 
Star Wars, which, as we were discussing earlier, is seen as the more hopeful and fun and, <laughs> and not too serious face opera between yes. the two. Which is completely wrong, no. but, but that's how it's seen. <laughs> I definitely think that an asteroid full of child slaves would be treated very differently in live-action Star Trek. And I think that's true yes. whether it would be TOS or Voyager or Deep Space Nine. Any live-action Star Trek. You're right, yes. It's just super interesting to me. And it's also, you know, you mentioned that when you were 14 and what you were thinking about. And when I was that age, I, I was surrounded by death. Yes. I, I did. I did experience it at a young age. And so I'm not, I'm maybe not the norm. I'm not the, the same audience. Even when I was that age, I wasn't the same audience as this audience is. No. Although I, I will also say that the last two years <laughs> have been pretty terrible. Yes. And so possibly those children are at that place. The great thing about science fiction and fantasy is that you can explore dark and terrible stories, but they're not, you know, the kids watching Prodigy are not going to have been child slaves. There is a, a veil. Between yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. they, they might feel lost and confused and alone as they journey through adolescence, but most of them have families and support networks and they're not mm -hmm. literally marooned on an asteroid where people are trying to kill them. And it is a safe space, as yeah. you said, to to explore those ideas. Yeah. So, yeah, it's good. It's probably healthy at the end of the day. <laughs> so Yes. So good. It's just a little terrifying to me. No, I understand. And certainly I've seen people like debating, I guess my eight-year-old could watch it, but I think his six-year-old brother is not ready yet. And I think that's a decision that every parent has to make. And I also saw a couple of people going, oh, you mean I should watch this with my kids? I should pay attention to what they're consuming and consume it with them? And yeah, I, I grew up with parents who read what I read, not because they're keeping an eye on me, but because they're genuinely interested. So, mm. so during that summer where my daughter had to read about death, mm -hmm. she totally didn't. <laughs> I read the book for her and told her what it was about <laughs> because she didn't want to. And I was like, you know what? Fair. Also, by that age, they understand their own tastes and their own preferences. Exactly. She read one and a half books of Twilight mm. and said, no, I do not have to finish this. I do not have to continue. I do not care how popular it is. Right. It's not for me. And that's the great thing. Like we talk about young people and teenagers as this mass, but they do have preferences and they do have taste. And just because something is popular doesn't mean they're all going to consume it. And just because something has X message doesn't mean they're all going to take that message from it either. Absolutely. My sister and her friends were very into Twilight and my mum was a bit concerned about that, uh, parentally speaking. And then she actually sat and listened to them talking about it and she was like, wow, these girls are just completely deconstructing the messages I didn't like in those books and they're so yes. smart about it. I always err on the side of trusting mm. the teenage girl reader to not look at something like Twilight as a how-to book yes like, this isn't how you're supposed to live your life this is just again a story where you are empowered to 
explore these dark ideas and these feelings that you might have in a safe way yes. that is not going to hurt anybody. And so, you know, infantilizing them and saying that if you read Twilight, you're going to automatically fall in love with a domestic abuser. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is putting a lot on a book and on the girl as opposed to the alleged domestic abuser. Like, yeah. Let's blame him yes. for the problem. Yes. Not Twilight or this girl who happens to like it. Right. And I think what's kind of great about Prodigy is that there are a lot of different types of characters for kids to identify with. I do mm -hmm. wish there were more girls. I know we have Rock yes. Talk and Gwyn, but then there's Dahl and Jankum and Murph, and Zero is non-binary. Well, so both Murph and Zero mm. are non-gendered. The official stuff around Murph is using he, but yeah. Like, I, I don't think Murph's gender is powerful. The official one I saw was unknown species, ah, unknown okay. gender. But, but that doesn't mean that people are, aren't calling it him. Yes. I'm just saying. Yeah. And, and, you know, it has a male voice actor, so people might gravitate towards that. Also, there's a question mark at this point over whether Murph is sentient or an animal. Yeah, I know. Murph, we literally know nothing about Murph, and it's kind of delightful how much everyone loves Murph. I mean, you give a person a purple blob. A happy, yeah, just it's just a happy piece of goo. Yeah. Like, it's just so funny. I think that eventually Murph is going to be sentient, but at the moment, really seems a lot more like a pet. Yes. Like, really getting a lot of, you know... Sort of, this is a weird comparison, but like Daenerys' dragons. <laughs> no, where no. They're a little bit smarter than a dog, but not a person. So a cat. No, that's my feeling so far exactly. And Murph sort of fits the same role as Pabu in Legend of Korra or Momo in Avatar. And the smart animal who is very person-like, but is an animal. Right. I, I do have to mention, though, that, like, first of all, they had the Murph emoji for Star Trek Prodigy, which was adorable. I know. And then Trek Central was doing this, like, tweet us a photo and we will add Murph to your photo, like Murph photobombs. Yes. And so I put up a picture of me wearing a Grogu hoodie. A I love Baby it. Yoda yes. hoodie. Yes. And because I was like, obviously Grogu and Murph are friends. Mm -hmm. Like that is the crossover that needs to exist. But the way that I'm posing in the picture, it doesn't look like Murph is photobombing me. It totally <laughs> looks like Murph and I are posing together and that Murph and Grogu are friends in fact. <laughs> and I was just so happy. It made my entire day. This delights me unspeakably. Do you remember those um, horrible sort of sticky plastic gel toys that you can get now and then? They come in and out of fashion. Yes. They collect a lot yes. of dust. I'm really looking forward to getting a Murph one. You, you throw one at the wall and it, and like it slowly goes down. Yes. yes, yes. Yes. I know exactly of what you speak. But I also yes. would totally take a Murph slime. Ooh, like, nice. Slime is sort of... 
Kids love slime. Right now, because it can be seen as like a fidget toy, which is totally why I own slime. <laughs> I, I don't like fidget spinners or that like popping bubble stuff that mm-hmm. is the newest, latest one. But I love slime. I can just sit there and, you know move it around in my hands and it's a wonderful anxiety reducer Mm. you can make your own slime and there's recipes and so i'm like super excited for the murph slime possibilities and if no one else makes it i will just make my own i have definitely seen slime kits to produce a specific type of slime and get on that paramount get on that i would 100% buy some immediately yes I don't have much to say about Jenkin Pog yet, save that I think he's going to be a bit Neelixy in that he will be a bit annoying. But maybe I'm prejudging because he looks more like a Talaxian than a Tellarite. Tellarite. I agree that he doesn't look like a Tellarite. It's weird to me. And none of the others are Alpha Quadrant aliens. No, no. Rock Talk is from the New Frontier books. Sorry, Rock Talk is a Brookarian, uh, which uh, are from the New Frontier books by Peter David. I haven't read those. I read the first one and it was the most awful Gary Stew nonsense I have ever read. And I say that as a person who has read a lot of Mary Sue fic. But I think actually everyone whose species is known, except for Gwyn, is from the Alpha Quadrant. So they're being stolen? I mean, I, there was vacation too, so it's yeah. like, okay. Is this a caretaker situation? Like, what's going on here? What's what's the, happening? The Star Trek subreddit has many theories. All of them seem pretty silly to me, save for the one that suggests that the Diviner or his agents have access to transwarp corridors, or hmm. because this is a few years after Voyager got home, the Federation is exploring the transwarp corridors and people are getting lost. The ship is there. So clearly, somehow, they're connected. Delta Quadrant and Alpha Quadrant are connected, which makes sense because, right, Voyager got home. And if I know anything about Starfleet or America, <laughs> yes, Starfleet is very American, Yes, they would be all over that and would want to explore, quote unquote, it immediately. If nothing so. else, they should be sending out a California-class starship to like do second contact with everyone Janeway met along the way and go, hey, uh, yeah, sorry, 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 you're welcome, we saved you, sorry about everything else. The Starfleet Apology Tour. The Starfleet Apology Tour. That is another series I would be willing to watch. <laughs> Anybody wants to make that happen. But we don't know much about how anyone came to be there, save the Cation who was brought in by our friend the Kazon slave dealer, which I'm like, dude, it's a generation since your people were slaves. I think you can do better. But we don't <laughs> know how old Zero is or how long they were a prisoner on, on the asteroid. And everyone else, I think we can assume that they were born elsewhere and brought here as children. Yes. Again, based on the Cation being considered young. Yes. And where I'm not exactly sure how old they are, but let's say like six. Yeah. And so let's assume maybe ten. Yeah. Which is old enough for Dahl to be socialized and, you know, understand sarcasm. That's older than Rock Talk is now, but we've discussed that Rock Talk is not obviously a small child. Yeah. And I think 
think we should also assume, though this might be contradicted very quickly, that Gwyn did not communicate with Rock Talk. Because otherwise I'm going to have questions. So, I've lost my thought. <laughs> Let's talk about Zero. Oh, yes, that's what I wanted to talk about. <laughs> I was going to say that Zero, I can't explain why, but mm. I can only picture Emma Thompson. Yes. Whenever Zero talks. And I'm just like... <laughs> I had forgotten that they cast Angus Emery, but I remembered that it was a man. And when we realised that that was Zero speaking, I was like, he sounds like a grand dame of the British stage. And it's, it's just such an impressive piece of voice work. I guess I'm inclined to throw some side-eye at casting a binary actor playing a non-binary character. But also, I think we've learned over the last few years that we don't know what's going on in a person's life or how they feel about their identity, and it is just a bloody good performance. It is, and again, despite being a man, I picture Emma Thompson. Yeah! So, so well done. It was just hilarious to me the entire time. I was just like, that's Emma Thompson. <laughs> that's who that is. Which makes no sense. No! And I admit that, I'm just like putting that out there. I realize this is ridiculous, but I have decided that Medusans are secretly Emma Thompson. All of them. Yes, I, I love this. I really <laughs> like Zero. I kind of keep wanting to put them into the morally ambiguous older female character box. Exactly! Which is obviously a problem because we don't know their age, they're not a female character, and I don't think they're morally ambiguous but they are certainly very pragmatic in a way that I enjoy. Absolutely. I was like, this is, and I think I said this in Discord, I was like, this is our Discord's character. Yes. That is the vibe I was getting from Zero, and I enjoyed it. We don't know how old Zero is, or what they're doing, or you know what any of it means. They didn't know how to use the ship any more than the rest of them did. For the first half or so, I was convinced that Zero was going to be a more adult character who was there for some other reason. Perhaps a crew member from the Protostar, because I have a question about where where they all went. Exactly. And so was going to be, like, getting the kids back home or to, like, you know, there was some purpose to it all. Yeah. And, like, there was, but it wasn't about the Protostar and it wasn't about any of that. It was because they don't know any more about it. Like, they didn't know how to use anything. They're definitely not Starfleet. Right. It was very interesting. Like, there's a lot of mysteries. Yes. Which, of course, it's the pilot episode, so they're not going to explain everything. They're going to set up a bunch of mysteries, and they did that. You know, mm. Dahl being an unknown... Species. He doesn't know what he is. I th think at this early stage we can assume he is not a founder question mark over Murph in that regard. They were saying on Twitter that no one has guessed what Murph is yet. Mm. And that Murph's species has not been seen on screen prior to this. That they're aware. So we should be looking at like Diane Duane's non-humanoid yeah. book characters. We should, we should find obscure yes, like beta canon Look, they've already Aliens. brought in the Brocarians, so yeah, let, let's see. I love the Diviner. He is terrifying. 
I hate the Diviner because he's terrifying. And Dreadnought is basically what if General Grievous was also a chibi reaper? And I'm into that. <laughs> General Grievous is another character in Star Wars who most people only know from the films. Like mainstream audiences. Yeah. And then Star Wars fans know him from Clone Wars. But even in Clone Wars... He has less characterization than Dooku or Darth Maul or yeah. the, the clones or Bail Organa even. He's really just a secondary tier villain after Palpatine and Dooku. Right. And he's yeah. not very interesting. Uh, whereas Dreadnought, we've only had him for Already. 45 minutes. It's too soon to right. say whether he's more interesting, but he is as interesting as Dooku after many seasons of The Clone Wars. Right. He's already getting there. Yeah. And the Diviner and Dreadnought were sort of, you know, bickering, kind mm. of, the entire time about Gwyn and about Zero and Dahl and what's happening and what do we want to do about it. And that was fun. I like that Dreadnought doesn't take the Diviner as the word of God. He sort of questions him and it's like, yeah, you're in charge. But that doesn't mean that you always know better than me and that I'm not going to speak up. He's like a Jason Isaacs character. <laughs> In that he's a little bit too arrogant to be second in command. He is second in command and that's his position, but he thinks he deserves better regardless of if it's true. He's subordinate but not subservient. Yes. Which is different from Grievous, because Grievous is completely subservient. Absolutely. But Dreadnought is also a bit ridiculous in a way that you need in a kid's villain, in that his professional yes. rival is a 17-year-old girl. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that leaves room for the Diviner to be purely menacing and terrifying. And John Noble is a good choice for that role. Yes. Love John Noble. Love his work on Fringe. Did not care for it in Sleepy Hollow, but there were a lot of things I wound up not caring for in Sleepy Hollow. Let's put it that way. My favorite John Noble performance is The Good Wife. Literally my favorite episode of The Good Wife. He is a main <laughs> character. And he's very good. And he is perfection. Yes. And totally creepy. Totally this weird presence that just sort of hangs over the entire story but also completely ridiculous. Much and like the Diviner, who... Exactly. It's not that he's ridiculous <laughs> yet, but he does have a menacing and constant presence, and his progeny he's... has just been stolen, and more importantly to him, the ship he wanted. He didn't want Gwyn to be taken or destroyed, but it was also sort of like, if that happens... Oh, well. Yeah. Like, I will just move on and it'll be okay. Which, in that part, reminded me of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, well, I guess my <laughs> son is lost. Too bad. It's also notable to me that it's only in the promotional stuff that Gwyn is referred to as his daughter. And actually in the show, she is always his progeny. So I wonder if there's mm. some sort of cloning scenario happening here or some other form of reproduction and I'm really keen to find out like a messed up father-daughter dynamic is what I'm into in a cartoon 100%
Yeah. Or anything. Or anything. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> Absolutely I, every story. I want another teenage girl in the cast because we have two teenage boys. And I want Hologram Janeway to take Gwyn under her wing. And I, I just want everyone to give Gwyn a hug. I don't think that's unreasonable. It's not unreasonable. Thank you. Everybody deserves hugs. Yes. Let's talk about the animation because it is beautiful and Gwyn's design in particular is just magnificent. It is absolutely beautiful. The crispness. Yes. While also being this really colorful sort of painted effect. It's just really interesting to me when things are sort of ethereal and when things are very sharp. The painted quality reminded me of Star Wars Rebels, but the level of detailing in the costumes is just something else altogether, especially with yes. Gwyn, because I think she has much nicer clothes than the others, obviously given her status, but the intricacy of her armband that becomes a sword and the design on her cloak, it's just really impressive work. I get Ghibli feels from it. Yeah. What impresses me is that even the most humanoid characters like Dal and Gwyn have designs that would be really hard to pull off in live action. Oh, yes. I love that they lean into that. Yes. That with all of the characters, they're like, we are going to absolutely go past what we can do with quote-unquote realism, which sets it apart from Lower Decks. Yes. Which is very sort of tongue-in-cheek about their animation. There's a very fantastic feel to Prodigy that sets it separate in that, in that realm of it would be very difficult to reproduce this yes. in a live-action setting. Even the Protostars bridge would be prohibitively expensive in live-action with that big open roof. But... It's beautiful and it looks a little bit like Discovery and it looks a little bit like the 2009 Enterprise. The design in this whole thing is so impressive. I saw some people saying that the editing was a bit choppy. I didn't see that myself, but I wasn't looking for it, so I'll take their word for it. If I notice the editing, it's bad. Yeah. So I'm going to say I didn't notice, and so that means it's at least not bad. Maybe it's not the best, but <laughs> yeah. I didn't notice it. That's about the same for me. Tell me your feelings about the music, because like the editing, I don't really notice the music. So share your thoughts. It's uh, Michael Giancino, yes. who did 2009, and it has a very Kelvinverse feel to it. At certain points, I was convinced it, in fact, was <laughs> enterprising young men re- mastered for mm. prodigy which isn't you know i can say that about john williams too and john williams is like the best composer of film scores ever to have existed but you can always tell that it's john williams and so yeah. you can tell that it's michael jean chino and i so that's not like a negative on him i'm not dinging him by saying that there were times where i was like i think this is mm. <laughs> literally the theme from the star trek 
Kelvinverse. It didn't fit the story as well as Discovery and particularly Picard. Yeah. Like, I am on the record as being completely obsessed with the Picard soundtrack. That is, like, my favorite or co-favorite part of the entire Star Trek Picard reality is the music. I love the music so much. And the only thing that even, like, is a rival for it is my Romulans. My Romulanisters. I think that Giancino's music matches Kelvinverse better than it matches Prodigy. But But we've only had one episode and there is a second composer right like, yeah I've yeah who it is i think it's a woman but that's all i can tell you i think it's a woman too that's exciting yes. to me building on what exists like building on the theme versus the interstitial music which eventually becomes the theme because eventually yeah. they're doing all of the music and so it's like recurring i, I don't know like it's fun to me. Like, film music is my favorite instrumental music and pretty much my favorite music. Like, hmm. I listen to a lot of music. I'm obsessive about Spotify playlists. But whenever anyone asks me what my favorite artist is or my favorite band, I should say, usually they ask me, like, who's your favorite band? And I'm yeah. like, John Williams. <laughs> John. <laughs> like, and they're like, I don't think that's a band. And it's like, yeah, but the, the reality is that Film scores are my favorite mm. music. And so that's what I'm excited for in Prodigy is to yeah. see the, like, we're going to take the Helvenesque themes and we're going to create, you know, Gwyn's theme. Like, I'm super excited for Gwyn to have a theme and for me to learn it and it's for it to end <laughs> up on one of my playlists. Yes. My only thought about the music is that I was kind of disappointed that it begins with the same sort of orchestral music that you get in most Star Trek. It would have been cool to start with something different, you know, maybe more electronic, and then ease into the orchestration as the pro-star is found. Seems like a missed opportunity, but no one asked me. No one asked you. No one asked (laughs) us. And uh, they should, because we are brilliant. (laughs) Do you have any thoughts on the voice acting? I've mentioned that I, I think that John Noble is really killing it. I think that... Angus? Yes. Emma Thompson is totally killing it. Yes. And Rock Talk. The young woman who is doing Rock Talk, who is a child, Mm -hmm. and she has so much aplomb for someone her age. You know, precocious little child actresses always sort of have that thing. (laughs) But she is still so innocent and really brings a lot. I'm very impressed with her. And I also, I gotta say, I think that Dahl, because he is the protagonist, I think that's a lot to put on, again, you know, he's a kid. (laughs) He's not a kid the way that Rock Doc is, but he's still young. And this is one of his first jobs. And I think that given all of that, he is very earnest. Yeah. It's, it's, It's sort of like, I can tell it's his first job, but it works for the character. Yes. Uh, I had some thoughts on Dahl and Gwyn because I was kind of like, Dahl sounds like a kid and Gwyn sounds like she's 35 years old. And that sort of bugged me. And so I looked it up and both actors are 25. 
I, I think the woman doing Gwyn is amazing. Uh, she is English, but her American accent is flawless to my Australian ear. I did not know she was English, but it sort of makes sense to me because there is that inflection. Yes. Like, it's not a British accent, but it's like in Star Wars, everybody with a British accent is upper class and from Coruscant. Yes. And that idea that she is elevated to mm. more of an upper class, whereas Dahl comes across as quote-unquote normal, standard, county type. Yes. Gwyn has a mid-Atlantic quality that I think will make her very interesting in conversation with Janeway. <laughs> that's fun. But I think that that's actually what... I, I She didn't come across as older or 35 to me. It it came across as upper class to me. It came across as, I'm a princess and mm. you are not. It... Also, once I realised that she was British made sense because many British actors drop their voices when they're doing American accents. You hear it particularly with Jason Isaacs. His American voice is, I would say, considerably lower than his day-to-day -day English voice. And I don't know why that, that is. I don't know why British actors do that, but it's delightful. But yeah, I, I definitely don't think that they were badly cast. It's just the contrast between their apparent ages and their voices well, but through me. I think it works for the characters because yeah. he is, he's youthful. And in terms of experience, yes. she is 10 years more. Absolutely. Like she, she is way ahead of him. So. She is privileged and educated and confident. Right. And he's the boy from the wrong side of the tracks who is stealing her and her heart. Aww. Thank you for listening to Antimatterpod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media and credits to our theme music. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at Antimatterpod and on Facebook. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. Let us know if you leave a review and you'll go into the draw to win a wee prize. And join us in two weeks when we'll be... No, join us in one week when we'll be, d be discussing episode two of Star Trek Prodigy, whose title is TBA. TBA. A very exciting title. title. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect.